Being an entrepreneur can be a lonely place. Most businesses don't even get past the first three years. So in this series, we're going to be talking to entrepreneurs that are high-performing or high-performing businesses that can help you with hints, tips and hacks to help you fast-forward your way to success. My name is Mark Burgess. I've got over 20 years experience working as an entrepreneur, building up various different businesses. I've wrote a best-selling book. I speak nationally and internationally at different conferences. And this is Raising Your Game. So in this episode of Raising Your Game, I interview Daniel Priestley. Dan's got four best-selling business books. He made a multi-million dollar business by the time he was 25. And in this episode, he talks about how to work on your business rather than in your business. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for coming. Um, I know you're a very busy guy. Well, I wouldn't pass up this. Yeah. Um, so um, for the m minute amount of people out there that might not know who you are, um, are you all right to just give us a bit of background on yourself, how you yeah. ended up in the UK and how you end up helping? Sure. So my background is as an entrepreneur. I started my first company at age 21 um, in Australia. Uh, I built that to a national business before getting out of that business and coming to the UK. Um, I launched a company here in 2006, um, which became one of the top conferencing companies for entrepreneurs. And we ran lots and lots of conferences with people like the Dragons from Dragons Den and um, international speakers coming into London uh, and um, and it kind of just morphed into a business accelerator and today we run a business accelerator for entrepreneurs um, featuring some of the top most celebrated entrepreneurs as trainers and mentors um, we operate in Australia Singapore UK and the USA um, I've written four books on entrepreneurship so I'm kind of like the JK Rowling I've got my Harry Potter of entrepreneurship series got the wand. yeah I've got my my pen um, and uh, and yeah, so so we work with thousands of entrepreneurs now uh, around the world, um, and the mission of the business is to get entrepreneurial teams focused at the world's most meaningful problems. So we align businesses to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, we're recently taking a, more of an interest in impact investing and looking for opportunities to tie in with um, some of the funds that are focused on that area. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, you know it's a great, really rewarding space to work within. Cool. Okay, so you get to work with loads of entrepreneurs, and this show is about trying to help entrepreneurs with hints, tips, hacks. Mm -hmm. So, what's a what's a reoccurring problem that people come to you with uh, when they're trying to sort their business out? Oh, there's a lot. So probably the overarching problem is that people think that their business is radically different. To all the other businesses. There's 5.7 million businesses in the UK and um, when you look at the data as deeply as our, myself and our team have, you see that it's a very predictable journey from startup and achieving a high quality concept through to validating a product decision, through to building a small team of 3 to 12 people, positioning someone as a key person of influence um, or an expert uh, and then um, investing into the assets of the business in order to scale. There are actual very predictable steps that you go through in order to build a business. Um, and you know, we work across 50, 60 different industries and the type of content that we talk about in that predictable journey, everyone can relate to. So we've worked with people in financial services and property, right through to food and consumer goods, through to charities that are trying to raise money. Um, and the entrepreneur journey is very applicable. So that would be one of the key things that people miss, that the 
the journey is not as complex as they think about. Think about a city like London. Um, it's a, it would seem an incredibly complex city, and yet the tube map actually makes it pretty easy to get around. Mm. So, you know, most people are just missing the tube map. Okay. So in that um, in that explanation, you were talking about people are missing assets. How do you how do you quantify that? So if you're, I mean, if you're, most people would look at assets as a big corporation owns loads of property, for instance. Mm. Um, how do you quantify that if you're a small? Well, it used to be that big corporations did own lots of properties and and they owned plant plant and equipment um, and stock. And um, if you go back to 20, 30 years ago, eighty five percent of the S and P five hundred was uh, made up of valuation of tangible assets, buildings. Um, land, plant and equipment, all of those sorts of things. That was 85%. And there was this weird 15% which they called intangibles or they called it goodwill. Um, and it was basically that if you added up all the stuff on the balance sheet, for whatever reason, the company was worth a little bit more. Um, and that was, that was not that long ago, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, fast forward to today, 85% uh, uh, of the S&P 500 is made up of intangible assets and only 15% is made up of tangible assets. So the buildings and the equipment and the plant and all that stuff adds up to this 15% and 85% is we don't know what. Um, and actually what it is, is digital assets. And digital assets are things like the brand, the culture, um, the ability to tell a good story and get lots of funding, um, the intellectual property, uh, the positioning within the marketplace, the algorithms, the software, the, the you know, unique intellectual property there the types of products that the business is producing. Um, so what that realistically looks like, to give big household name examples, would be the difference between News Corporation, um, which was a media company people could advertise on, versus today Facebook, um, which is a media platform that people can advertise on. Makes the, they make their money the exact same way. Um, News Corporation is now worth $9 billion and employs 50,000 people. Facebook's worth 600 billion and employs 25,000 people. Um, and what's it made up of? Algorithms, software, brand, culture, innovation, all of those sorts of things. So when I look at um, you know, businesses that are looking to scale, there's seven big asset areas that I want them to invest into, which is their intellectual property, their brand, um, their, their what we call market assets or marketing assets, their products, systems, culture, and funding assets. And if we can get all of those um, uh, lined up, then, uh, then the business will scale. So <clears throat> lots of companies, they're, they're looking for this unique thing. That, like the, the, if, let's just, you know, we're on the property channel, so let's say an estate agent is looking for like this unique way of being an estate agent. Would you say it's more about just doing it properly, doing it well, making sure they've got the assets in place so that the, ex the experience mm. is a great experience. I know, you know, I've read one of your books, Oversubscribed, talks a lot about your capacity to delight. And I was talking to a client the other day and, and we were having a conversation about this, this, whether they should be, you know, running this special kind of offer or whether they should do this service yeah. or that service. And I, and I was kind of talking to them about actually most businesses already exist, just most people do it badly. Yeah. So would you say that's... Well, here's, you know, I, I use the example, if you want your business to be different, dress everyone up in purple dinosaur suits, <laughs> right? I don't think that'll help you, um, but it'll make you different. And um, I don't think it'll position you as credible or trustworthy or excellent. It'll just make you different. 
So focusing on trying to be different is not necessarily the outcome. The outcome is to be excellent, to be trustworthy, to be reliable, um, to, be, to be a lot better. The other thing too is that as entrepreneurs, we think about markets. We think about how many thousand customers we might want to get. And it's easy to homogenize people. And actually, there's a moment, the, the truly brilliant marketers, the guys who are able to scale businesses into the billions, one of the primary understandings they have is that every individual has an inner world that is complex and rich, um, as complex and rich as your own. So they all have their insecurities, their doubts, their hopes, their ambitions, their frustrations. And that the more you try and homogenize people and forget about their, their reality, their world, then the less you connect and the more you truly understand people's world and, and put systems in place that connect with people, that understand people, that um, learn about people um, and that make people feel special, valued, unique um, and, and build that relationship. To that one individual, let's say you could let's say you could only do that to one person. Let's say you could follow them around and really get to know them and really de deliver perfectly well-timed services and all that sort of stuff. If you could only do that for one person, that one person would think your company's phenomenal. Would think you're amazing. So then the question is, well, how would you scale that? And you can use technology, you can use um, data, you can use all sorts of ways to scale it. But you should never lose sight of the fact that that you're dealing with individuals. You're dealing with, you know, humans. So, um, so you're not necessarily trying to be different. You're trying to be brilliant. Yeah. Why do what? I mean, when you say it like that, it's so obvious. Why do so many people lose sight of of that? Why does their business suddenly become how many of these can we sell? So it's a lack of empathy. So you start to identify yourself as an entrepreneur, um, and that puts you firmly on the I'm trying to sell stuff side of the fence, um, and you fall out of empathy with the marketplace that's interested in buying something or interested in solving a problem or interested in achieving a particular outcome. Um, and the, the truly great entrepreneurs are the ones who never lose that empathy. They're the ones who actually figure out on the other side of that fence, there's someone who's trying to achieve something. They're trying to get something done in the world. How do I help them do what it is that they want to get done? Um, uh, so it's you know, a, huge, a huge skill is empathy. Yeah, okay. Um, so we, we, we need to go to a commercial break in a minute. So just, just very, very quickly, um, we can continue talking about after the break, but was there a moment in your journey where you flipped and you uh, went from, you know, the entrepreneur who was just trying to sell stuff to the entrepreneur who realized there's empathy? Uh, well, a big moment would have been releasing my first book um, because in the process of writing that book, I did a lot of research and I did a lot of... Um, you know, talking to people and, and getting to know people and then putting the book out um, uh, you know kind of got me a lot of speaking and media and all of those sorts of things so there was and that put me in contact with a lot more of the market okay um, we're go I'm going to talk to you a bit more about the book and how that, how that's worked for you and and how it's impacted your entire career um, but we need to go to a break so don't go away Okay, so before the break, we just touched on the fact of you wrote a book. Uh, you'd started your entrepreneurial journey and then you decided to write a book and then suddenly you started getting speaking gigs and all this stuff. What made you decide to write a book? 
Well, I was running conferences around uh, Australia and the UK, and all of our speakers that we put on stage, they all had books. And because they had books, they had people who wanted to show up and see them. And because they had books, they had very clear insights and stories that they'd thought about. And it just seemed to be that everyone who was, who was doing it had a book. And I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book. Um, so I sat down and started writing a book and discovered that the process of writing a book is brilliant. Like it, it really forces you to think things through. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was just one of those things that, um, that out came this book. And, uh, and it was just such a, a really cool thing to create something that almost has a bit of permanence to it, a way of people discovering you, something that if someone you know, overseas wants to connect with you, you can pop one in the mail to them. Um, you know, so it, it actually became you know, a really great tool. And now, now obviously lots of entrepreneurs come to you for advice on how to scale up, stand out. I know before we spoke about this predictable journey that people just need a map mm -hmm. in order to get through it. Is there something, just one, one piece of advice whereby you sort of think to yourself, I have to say this to people, not just, the, not just that they know the, need to know the journey, but I have to say this to people time and time again, and, and a lot of the time, they have to just experience it for themselves mm. before they'll actually take it on board, a bit like when a child's got to fall over. And Yeah, look, there's, there's definitely something around pitching. So we have this maxim called you get what you pitch for and you're always pitching. And one of the beliefs that we have after working with a lot of entrepreneurs is that the ones who become very successful, they pitch something into existence and it takes them a thousand pitches. So um, I've seen businesses that raise a lot of money and grow and scale and exit and it's about a thousand pitches that that person has done. They pitch for the business to exist in the first place. They pitch for the first round of funding. They pitch for the first partnership deal. They pitch for that sponsorship. Um, and for every pitch, they might identify 60 potential of the people they might want to pitch to. They might then have 12 meetings, 10 of them you know, uh, go okay, and then two people say that they're interested in, in doing something. So it's, it's a lot of pitching. Um, and it works the same with social change. So um, Martin Luther King Jr., the I Have a Dream speech was about the thousandth time he'd given that same speech. Um, he'd given that you know, from age 25, 26 when he was a pastor, with the local church, Rosa Parks movement, civil rights movement, going all across the USA, giving that I have a dream speech. Um, and then he ends up in Washington where he goes out to a mass market and it's widely regarded as the most impactful speech of the 20th, 20th century. So, but, it, but what's interesting is he didn't just stand up and give that speech and he didn't just accidentally get put on that stage. It happened as a result of, a, of 999 pitches that happened before it. Yeah. Um, the same thing happens when you see that person who sold their company. What didn't happen is there wasn't like a person who's got 20 million walking down the street going, oh, this, this business looks all right. Uh, that, that exit was probably the result of pitching to 50 to 60 different exit potential partners and narrowing it down and pitching again and then getting down to three or four companies that are interested in acquiring the business and maybe going through a six-month pitching process with each of them, yeah. you know, you know, it's probably an 18-month journey to exit that company for its full value. Um, when you hear about an entrepreneur who's, you know, done a really game-changing deal with a corporate, they've probably identified a potential dozen, and then they've gone through pitching, and there's probably 12 months of pitching. Yeah. So, uh, and, and at a very basic level, customers, 
right? You know, customers don't just sign themselves up. You need to get out there and talk to them, right, and pitch. Um, you might do it sometimes on video. You might do it on a podcast. But you've got to be out there pitching. Yeah. Uh, so, what about to the entrepreneur who says, oh, "I just, I just don't like doing that. I'm going to get somebody else to do it." Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would, I would say that uh, your team will only ever pitch as well as the entrepreneur. They're only going to, they're only going to do it as good as you are. Um, you've got to get away from this idea that there's a white knight who's coming to save you. If you're an entrepreneur, no one's coming to save you. Um, your, you know, your best salesperson will be as good as you. Um, if you've got low standards, everyone around you will have low standards. If you poorly communicate the value of your business, other people will poorly communicate the value of your business. So in every way, you're in the driver's seat and no one's coming to save you. And when you say pitch something into existence, um, obviously you know, you're know you pitching for uh, customers, you're pitching for funding, you're pitching for all of this stuff. But do you think it's important that people uh, create their uniqueness in their pitch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, your pitch has to be... Your pitch has to be crafted to, to really accentuate your story, your background, your points of difference, um, the problems that you solve and your unique approach to solving them. All of that has to come out in the pitch. Some people um, feel a bit funny about talking about themselves, you know, because if you're going to do a pitch where you talk about your background mm. and, and, you know, what's so special about you guys, there's a lot of people out there that I would just like be a bit, yeah, talking about myself. A bit embarrassed. Yeah. Um, so two things I'd say about that. Number one, your goal is not to be in the spotlight. Your goal is to shine the spotlight on something. Um, as an entrepreneur, it's not about me. It's about look at this. It's not look at me. It's look at this. Um, second thing is, if you went to a doctor and the doctor said, look, you're going to need some surgery on your leg. Um, uh, let's get started. You go, whoa, I feel scared. Um, if the doctor said, um, you're going to need some surgery in your leg, I've done over a thousand of these. Um, I studied at Imperial College um, where you know I studied under one of the best professors in this particular field. Um, and um, I'm very proud of the work that we've done at the NHS and blah, 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 blah. If they told you about a bit about themselves and their background and put you at ease, you'd feel a lot better about, oh, okay, well, then you can do the operation on my leg and I'll feel more comfortable about that. So one of the reasons a great pitch, uh, one of the, the, the hallmarks of a great pitch is it should make people feel good about you. It should make them feel like, ah, oh, this is the person I've been looking for. This is the trusted partner I've been looking for. This is the trusted supplier I've been looking for. Um, if the, if the, a pitch is measured by the result that it gets, so if the result is people think, oh, well, clever clogs, you know, then uh, then that's not a great pitch. You know, the, 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 you've got to craft it. You've got to tone it down a little. Yeah. Um, so, so um, when we first met, it turned out, uh, you know, that you came from a town that I'd visited in Australia, a small town. So how there was there must be something that you would say. Uh, I know you mentioned the book, um, but something put you in a position where you saw all these people doing these books. There was there something that you think. If you look at the old Daniel Priestley yeah. and you look at Daniel Priestley today, where you'd say, like, the biggest thing I put it down to is, I don't know, team, culture, what, what would it be? There's an, uh, an entrepreneur out there who's so, struggling now. Yeah, so, well, in my case, it was a great mentor. So from 19 to 21, I had a great mentor. I had someone teach me how to do it. Um, and you know nobody's born with the knowledge of how to generate leads and make sales and innovate a product and all of those sorts of things. You know, so someone has to teach you how to do it, and there are best practices and there are ways to do it. So the incredibly 
fortunate thing for me um, was that I got the opportunity to work alongside an entrepreneur where on pretty much day one or month one of my job, uh, we stood around their kitchen table and we mapped out the campaigns, the promotions, we came up with the brand name, uh, we made a list of all the product features and that sort of stuff that we were gonna launch with. Um, and we did all this on blank sheets of paper over half a day. Mm. And then, you know, the next month I'm uh, sticking stamps on envelopes and doing direct mail campaigns and I'm trying to get my hands on some data and picking up the phone and calling people back. And uh, within two years, we hit about six million in revenue. So we went from three or four people standing around a kitchen bench to 60 people in an inner city office doing um, half a million a month in sales. And I had this wonderful experience of knowing exactly what it was like to start from scratch and get to six million in two years. How did you uh, release the control freak in you when you scaled out to 60, 60 people? Well, it wasn't my business. Uh, I was just employee number three in that particular um, situation. And John, who was just a great entrepreneur, never had a control freak. He, from minute one, he wanted he wanted to get good people doing as much as they could, and um, he would hire and train and do all that sort of stuff. So I, I guess I never picked up on that vibe. Um, one thing that's been really helpful is I've never been a technician at anything. So I think one of the things that can work against you is that if you're technically a brilliant lawyer, it's very hard for you to go hands off um, because you know how it could be done better. Or if you're technically a great mechanic, you're gonna to wanna to pick up the tools and build the thing yourself. Um, if you're a designer or a coder, you're gonna to wanna to do the design and code. Um, one of the kind of benefits of not having any particular technical skill is that you have to go find the best people you can find and resource them. Um, and actually that's really handy uh, because that's probably a, a more scalable approach to entrepreneurship. You just, you just made me realize why I don't have the control freak in me because I literally can't do can't, anything. You can't do it yourself, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, lots, of, lots of entrepreneurs and business owners that I talk to, they have this issue where you know, they're just, there's just not enough time in the day. They're doing all of these things. Mm. Um, and I guess that's, as you say, they were the technician and then they fell into uh, uh, owning a company, mm -hmm. which actually became a job. Yep. How do they get out of that? They need to position themselves as a key person of influence. So there's functional skills that get you so far, and then there's vital skills or soft skills that get you to be a position of influence. And as a key person of influence, if you look at Richard Branson, he knows that his job is to be the key person of influence of Virgin. He, he shouldn't be doing a course on how to fly planes or how to check people in or how to um, establish credit risk. Like those are things that are not good decisions for Branson. His job is to pitch the vision, to publish content, to make product choices and lead product choices, uh, to raise profile of himself and the business and to do partnerships and to do recruitment, I'd put under that. Um, and if he does those five things and he positions himself as that key person of influence, uh, he, you know, he'll do really well. And his job is to work on the business, not in the business by being the key person of influence. Um, so some really practical things. I encourage business owners to build a team of three to 12 people around them. Um, a few people who are in sales, a few people who are in technical delivery, a few people who are in admin management. Um, and then to actually relinquish your desk from the office. Don't have a desk, right? Uh, you know, avoid sitting in the office all day. Go out and meet people. Your highest value is out there in the world, not sitting at the desk. Lead a great team meeting at the beginning of the week. 
um, set people up for having a good week and then let them get to it. Nice. Um, and and what do you do with your time? Go speak, go write, you know, be a key person of influence. I guarantee you, the, the key to having a lifestyle, like if you want to, you know, a lot of people say, I want a lifestyle business. Lifestyle business is very easy to achieve. Uh, three to 12 people on a team with one person who's famous. Wow. <laughs> right? Or one person who's a key person of influence. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you've got that, I mean, I, you, can, you see this again and again and again. This person is a key person of influence. They're very well known, liked and trusted in their industry. Um, they've got a team of three to 12 people working around them. Their job is to become more and more influential while the team's job is to monetize. And, um, and that, that's a lifestyle. It's certainly not working by yourself. Working by yourself is a bad idea. I don't believe in the term solopreneur. Um, I think t entrepreneurship is a team sport. Um, and also, the complexity of having a bigger team than 12 uh, kills the fun uh, for most people. That's brilliant. Um, so, we've got to wrap it up. Um, if anybody wants to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do it? Stop me in the street. <laughs> Shout. Yeah, and. just across the street, especially if I'm with my wife. Right, then. <laughs> but you're right, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of those things. Yeah, so easy. Facebook There's only one Daniel Priestley, you'll find him no problem. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Cheers. Brilliant. Thank you very much.